You're listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast, as Pastor Jared preaches on the book of Micah. If you'd like more information, visit us at tulsabible.org. morning. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to Micah chapter 3. And we're going to cover um, the whole chapter this morning. Great to see everybody here. Saw some people visiting from out of town. Last name Zachary over there. So Roy, am I told, 92 years old this week? 92-year birthday, this guy right here. What's, what's the fountain of youth, man? Are you eating blueberries? Like, what's, I mean, what's keeping it going over there? This is amazing. Is, is Tuesday the day? Tuesday's your birthday? Tomorrow, Monday. All right, so let's get, good to have you guys. Thanks for, thanks for coming from out of town. Um, also, just wanted to mention to you guys, to our church family here, uh, this coming Saturday will be the funeral for Sarah's dad, Tom Moan. And so if you guys have been in Tulsa and um, you're aware of, of his ministry that he's, he's had in the city for quite a while, um, you might just come out and, and not only just love and support on Sarah uh, this week, but also uh, be a part of that funeral service for her dad. So they're very, very close. Just be thinking about Sarah, her family, be praying for them this entire week. Um, the, the church will be pretty Pretty booked up here. It's uh, I think it's 11 o'clock on Saturday morning is when they're going to do that, and then a, a lunch is going to be provided for everybody in the gym afterwards if you can stay for it. So, uh, just want to let you know about that, um, and just again, just be praying for praying for their family through this time. It'd be great. Let me pray, and uh, we'll start off in Micah chapter three. Father in heaven, thank you so much for. Um, just the time that we have to come together. Thank you that uh, we've got a new staff this week at the church with Dominic here. Just, um, just thank you for his transition and, and starting out. Pray that that goes extremely well. Um, Lord, thank you for just our, our godly, elderly guys in the church that have um, been living a Christian life that's honoring to you. Um, think about my brother Roy over there and his family. I, just, I pray this is a great birthday for him, great time to be with his family. Lord, we lift up uh, Sarah and her family to you and, and just pray that that service would completely and um, just glorify you in every way. Uh, comfort them, give them peace at this time. Lord, as we, uh, as we continue through the book of Micah, just pray for attentiveness. I pray for open hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that your word would do what only it can do in our hearts and just uh, trans- continue to transform us more and more into who you'd have us to be as image bearers um, growing in your likeness. Lord, as, uh, as we continue to approach the, the Christmas season, I pray that our hearts would just be softened to the reality of the incarnation and, and what it's meant for us and your plan of salvation and, and what you've done for us through Christ. God, our, our heart is that he would take center stage, not only over our entire lives, but especially for this next hour. Uh, we ask that through your Holy Spirit. Amen, amen. Uh, we're gonna have a couple new members to invite up and introduce after the sermon as well. So if you guys just hang out for that after time, uh, when we do the Lord's Supper, I'll be introducing three more new members and that'll wrap it up for this year. So extremely excited about that. Um, have any of you, are you familiar with this guy right here? You guys know what that is? 
I saw one of these little creatures on the side of my garage door in Kansas one day, and it was just kind of hanging out, just sitting there, waiting for something to pounce on. Uh, praying mantises are interesting creatures. Uh, they get their name for how they, they stalk their prey, basically. They put their two front uh, legs together in a praying motion before, in one-tenth of a second is how long it takes for a praying mantis to strike its prey. And once you're in the, the fatal death grip of the praying mantis, I mean, life is pretty much over for you. So you got one-tenth of a second to respond. The praying mantis might look pretty innocent and seem innocent, especially when you see it in pictures like this, but to the insect and the animal kingdom, this is an absolute killer. Uh, praying mantises like to puncture the skull of their victims and eat their brains first. And uh, I, everything I've learned about praying mantises, I've learned on YouTube, so you can double check me on that. <laughs> really, really fun fact about praying mantis, that's not my favorite part of this creature. The female praying mantises are bigger, stronger, and hungrier than the males. 28% of the females while they are in the process of reproducing, will eat the males before it's all said and done. Um, and all of us would kinda, here's, here's what I'm, here's why I wanna say this uh, in good taste here at TBC. All of us would kinda think like, that seems really unjust. It seems like that shouldn't happen. Uh, pandas will often abandon a little uh, bear cub and allow um, the mom to, to care for another one instead because pandas can't typically care for two cubs at the same time. And all of us kind of look at the animal kingdom and we see things like this praying mantis and these cute lovable pandas and we say, that just seems like it's really unjust. It doesn't seem like something's right there. Um, and animals don't care about justice. The animal kingdom doesn't really care about justice. But with humanity, it's a much different story. As human beings, we should care deeply about justice. And to understand the biblical view of justice, I wanna just go back a little bit, back to where scripture starts, back to where the Bible starts with justice. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, in fact, this is the first place where we learn a little bit more about the justice of God and how he deals with humanity because humanity is, was created differently than every other aspect of God's creation. God created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created morning and evening. He created so many things through this universe and everything in his majestic power and his sovereignty was put together perfectly according to his plan. When you get to day six and it starts talking about the creation of man and woman, it is drastically different than everything else that has come before that. Because this is the day where it starts out and it says, let us create man in our image and in our likeness he created them. Male and female he created them in his image. God created man in his image. And right at the beginning you see two markers, and two marks of being created in the image of God. One is a mark of differentiation and one is a mark of uh, sameness or equality. Um, the first thing you know about image bearers created in the image of God is there is a difference to them. There's a difference from being created a male and a female. 
Every chromosome inside your body, every cell in your body is marked with a chromosome labeled either XX or XY. It goes back to the biological nature that you were created with your gender from creation. There's no changing that cell pattern in your body. That's a difference between God's creation of his image bearers, male and female. And yet, there's still a sameness, there's an equality in being created in the image of God as well. Because we're all equally created in God's image. No matter who we are, no matter what our family is, no matter our ethnicity, where we're from, no matter what we do, we are all equally created in the image of God, which would have been a major shock for any aspect of ancient Near Eastern culture. They wanted to desperately believe that there were some people in society and culture that were more significant than others. It was a patriarchal dominated society at the time. The Bible says that men and women are equally created in the image of God, all of them, whether rich or poor, weak or strong, significant or insignificant, vulnerable, not vulnerable, all people are equally created in God's image and have a right to dignity and fair treatment and justice in the world. God not only created all equally in his image, he also defined for us what is good and evil. And here's where the problem surfaced just three chapters into the biblical drama and the story of God's redemptive history. Because some people define good and evil differently. Some people actually say what is evil is good and what is good is actually evil. And usually what happens in those situations is somebody who's more powerful, who's stronger, and wants to gain control over somebody else who's less strong and vulnerable will start to manipulate the definitions of good and evil to their own desires and to what they want in a society, in a culture. And so because of sin, people begin redefining good and evil. And usually those redefinitions take place in order to take advantage of others, especially the weak and the vulnerable. Happens to individuals, happens to families, happens to communities, happens to people groups. Intro into uh, this con context in Micah. When God appears to Abram, he calls him and he reveals himself to him. And Abram is commanded to live a drastically different life than everybody else. In fact, God gives such a special call to Abram that he defines it by doing righteousness and justice. I want you to read this verse on the screen with me. This is Genesis 18, verse 19. It says this, For I have chosen him, speaking of Abram, Abraham at that time, that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. And that phrase, doing righteousness and justice, is a loaded phrase. It has a deep theological and significant meaning to it. I'm not gonna be able to hash all of that out this morning, but I do wanna just begin to touch on the surface of what it means. Uh, doing righteousness and justice. Typically, you might think that this is associated with being a nice person, uh, being a good moral person, treating other people the way that you would wanna be treated, and, and you're down the right path a little bit, but there is so much more than that. Righteousness is the Hebrew word 
tzedakah is how you pronounce it. And this specifically has to do with the way that you treat other people. Ethics, fairness, that there is a certain way that we should treat other people who are created in the image of God. Justice is a little bit different. This is the Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat and tzedakah. You will see those two words next to each other all through the Psalms and at different places in your Old Testament, and it is for a very specific reason. Justice mishpat, sometimes it'll refer to retribution. If you're going to, um, you wanna be served justice, you wanna receive justice in a certain situation. Somebody's gonna have to pay for a crime, somebody's gonna have to pay restitution, or something like that for justice ultimately to be served. That's restorative justice, um, or retributive justice, excuse me. There's another kind of justice that's called restorative justice. And this is not simply treating other image bearers fairly. Restoring justice goes beyond just retribution. Restoring justice is actually seeking out avenues to help the poor, the needy, the weak, and vulnerable. It means sacrificially thinking about other people before you think about yourself and doing what you can do to care for God's image bearers whom he has created in his image. Uh, Restorative justice seeks the poor, the marginalized, the weak, and it cares for them very specifically. Mishpat involves advocating for people who can't advocate for themselves. Uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff, good last name for you. Uh, He wrote heavily on justice mishpat in the Bible and the Old Testament concept of it. And he said, there are four groups of people that are distinctly mentioned throughout the Old Testament. He calls them a quartet of the vulnerable. And you will read this over and over again in the law and in the Old Testament. It'll talk about the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. And those four groups of people, Israel, God's people are commanded, the church is commanded to care for them over and over again. It's our responsibility to look out for them in a very significant and a very special way. Justice in the Old Testament is almost always about caring for the vulnerable and the weak in a society and in a culture. Uh, Justice to live in justice is what you read about in Job 31. If you wanna know what it looks like to live a righteous and just life before God, turn to Job 31 and you will get a great description of what that looks like. Job 31, 16 through 18. Job did not withhold anything that the poor desired or caused the eye of the widow to fail. He did not eat his morsel alone, the fatherless ate with him. That passage goes on to talk about all four groups of the people that I just mentioned. Psalm 82, three and four says this, it commands us to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, to rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And so God chose this man, Abram, Abraham, to live in a way of sedekah and mishpat, to live out justice and righteousness on a daily basis. And it just so happened that his family eventually became the weak and the oppressed of another stronger nation. Eventually the family of Abraham went to Egypt and they were enslaved and and afflicted with cruel and harsh treatment. God has favor on them 
in the book of Exodus. He looks down and he shows grace and mercy to them and he rescues them and liberates them from their plight in slavery. He rescues and redeems them from Egypt and brings them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. God brought Israel and Judah into the land of promise, into the conquest. He has favor on his people and then the unthinkable happens in the land. The people of Judah and Israel themselves start to mistreat and abuse and use power to control others in ways that the law never ever commanded them to do. They were always to be a people that was distinguished and special in the way that they lived with each other in justice and righteousness. The people of Israel and Judah didn't do that. They failed to obey the law and the covenant that God had given them. And so now their leaders are not treating other people with mishpat and sedekah, with justice and righteousness. And so the Lord brings them prophets, like the prophet Micah, to address the sin of the people. The prophets preached to Israel and said, Israel, you have not dealt justly with my people, therefore judgment is coming. And here's where we pick up in Micah chapter three. Now Micah chapter three is held together by a common theme, and if you haven't figured it out yet, this common theme in Micah three throughout the entire chapter is this idea of the mishpat of God, it's the justice of God, and the way that he cares for the weak and for the vulnerable. You'll see a mention of justice in, in Micah chapter three, verse one. And I said, hear you heads of, J- of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? Skip down to verse eight, chapter three. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice, mishpat, and might. Micah himself is one who will take up the cause of the widow, the orphan, the alien, and the poor among him. Uh, One verse down, Micah three, verse nine, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, mishpat, and make crooked that which is straight. In every paragraph of Micah three, you will find a reference to the mishpat justice of God or this restorative justice of God for the weak and for the vulnerable. Another item that brings Micah chapter three together is who it's addressed to. This entire chapter is addressed to the leaders of Judah, the significant rulers of Judah, the prophets of Judah, the false prophets, and then it even goes on to talk about all the leaders altogether. And Micah chapter three, verse one, talks about the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. In chapter three, verse five, it talks about the false prophets. And then chapter three, verse nine is the final paragraph. Again, that talks about the heads and the rulers of the people. Micah addresses evil leaders, false prophets, and then all the leaders over his people. And all of them were guilty of not living out justice and righteousness as God had commanded them to do. These are not just civil leaders, judges, and lawyers. These are religious leaders, false prophets. These are all the leaders that are corrupt and guilty of disobeying God. No one is exempt from God's judgment in Micah. Any organization, you guys have probably heard this before, is only as strong as their leaders. As the leadership goes, so goes the team, so goes the group, whatever it might be. 
When it comes to the justice of God, God starts with the leaders. And he talks about their responsibilities for it. Uh, question for you, this comes from John Maxwell. What is a leader? Leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. Even if you don't find yourself in a position of leadership, it doesn't mean you're not a leader in some way because somebody is always being influenced by your life, your actions, and your decisions. Everybody in this room is a leader because everybody is influencing somebody in some way. Uh, true leadership in the Bible and, and even in life cannot be awarded, appointed, or assigned. True leaders and true leadership comes only from influence. Another way of putting this is that um, leadership is not um, given to you, leadership is earned. What happens, when there, what happens when there is no example? What happens when there is no conviction? What happens when there is no character in the life of the leaders over a group of people? What happens when there was no leaders in the life of Judah and Israel? Micah chapter three. Let's see what, how this all fleshes out. Uh, look at Micah three. I'm gonna read verses one through four. And I said... Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Uh, welcome to Tulsa Bible Church this morning. <laughs> Not, not an easy passage to read. Uh, verse four, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. First, I want you to just notice the, the imagery and the graphic language that we just read, read about in those verses. Micah describes Judah as a, a cannibal beasts devouring their prey. Uh, the images and the verbs used here are tear, eat, flay, break, chop. These are plural in function when you look at the descriptions of these verbs. These are things that happen over and over again. Israel's leaders were like insatiable hunters. They were killing, eating, and never satisfied with the damage that they were doing to their prey. It wasn't enough to tear the skin and eat the flesh. Micah goes ahead and says that they chopped up their bones as if they were preparing for a stew and threw it all in the pot. All of this is, is framed with this one really central rhetorical question about the justice of God. Is it, for not, is it not for you to know justice? And that word for know in Hebrew is yada. That has to do with an emotional knowing, a spiritual knowing, and a physical knowing, to be well acquainted with knowing justice. The rulers and the leaders of Israel should have been um, intimately understanding what justice was and how to live a just life. There's a, there's a place in 1 Kings at the height of the United Kingdom in Israel. This is before the civil war in Israel when the north split from the south. Solomon is king. David had given Solomon peace from all of his enemies, all of Israel's enemies around him. Solomon comes in, he builds this majestic, massive house for God, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the eighth wonder of the world, it's been called. Um, and the queen of Sheba in the south 
actually hears about what's happening with Solomon and his kingdom, and she comes to pay him a visit. And she arrives and she sees the kingdom, she sees the glory, she sees the temple, the house that he had built for God. She sees everything that's happening in and around the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Israel, and she's completely amazed. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse nine, we read this. Here's, here's her conclusion to uh, Solomon's kingdom and what he had built. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. This is a, a pagan ruler now coming into Israel and acknowledging that this is the Lord's doing in the nation of Israel for Solomon because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you might execute mishpat and tzedakah, justice and righteousness. In other words, it was the responsibility of the king to ensure that the nation was gonna live justly and righteously and treat the poor and the vulnerable fairly. But Micah says to the rulers, you don't love good and hate evil. You hate good and love evil. And it's not, again, it's not just the civil authorities that are caught up in this. This is the religious authorities as well. It's also the prophets. Skip down to verse five, Micah chapter three. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. The diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. This description is getting to the, to the motivations of the prophets. Literally, in Hebrew, you'd read it something like this in verse five. These prophets cry peace when they have something to bite with their teeth. Micah is continuing this graphic imagery that he just used for the civil leaders in the paragraph above. Their teeth, this biting, it's a, it's a technical term in Hebrew. It's only used about 12 times in the Old Testament. 10 of those 12 times, it's used in when it describes snakes, predators killing their prey. False prophets are depicted as malevolent serpents killing their victims in order to feed themselves and nourish themselves. And what was, what was the result of these false prophets and these evil leaders in Judah and Israel? Um, when I was young, perhaps you guys experienced this to some level um, growing up a little bit. I'm, I'm the youngest of four siblings in my family. I've got an older brothers, two years older than me, and I've got two older sisters that are many years older than me. And so at the other end of the sibling tree, uh, it was just very common for the sisters to basically take over, you know, and do whatever they were gonna do when mom and dad were gone and, and we got babysat for the night on a date night or whatever it might have been. Um, have you ever, ever, uh, had this little game played on you. Uh, me and my brother were always wanting to eat. It was always needed to be dinner time, like two hours ago, and, and we were always hungry. And so we went to the sisters, we say, hey, what are we having for dinner? Uh, you guys are supposed to cook us food, you're taking care of us, we're starving here, let's go, let's go. And my sisters would do something like this. They would look right at me and my brother, right in the eye, and they would talk to us like we weren't even there. Did you hear something? I hear these voices talking to me, 
but I don't really understand where they're coming from. Did you hear something, Chrissy? Did you hear something, Lori? I don't, it's amazing. I, I feel like I'm hearing something. Did you guys ever, ever get this trick played on you as a kid? It happened to us all the times, and, and it was like so frustrating because um, we were saying things, but it was as if they weren't being heard. It was almost as if my sisters didn't want to hear the things that we were saying. One of the greatest tasks of a prophet in Israel is to listen to God, is to speak with God, and get a response from God. Um, listen to this verse in, in Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 16. As for you, speaking to Jeremiah here, do not pray for this people, referring to Judah and their sinfulness. Do not lift up a cry or a prayer for them. Do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. How bad does it have to be for the nation of Judah, this group of people, that God literally says to their prophets, their true prophets, stop praying, I won't hear your prayers. You can talk all you want to, you can ask for forgiveness all you want to, I'm not listening anymore. I've warned you enough times, this conversation goes no further, don't waste your breath, don't take any time for it, don't take any time for the people, I will not hear you, and I will not hear your prayers. Micah chapter three, verse four. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Micah chapter three, verse six and seven. It shall be night to you without vision, darkness to you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets. The day shall be black over them. At the end of verse seven, there will be, there is, no answer from God. It's a great contrast here between um, the false prophets of Judah and the true prophet. Micah was a true prophet, a true spokesperson uh, for the one true God of Israel. There's a great contrast here between them and, and Micah in verse eight. Look down at uh, verse eight. But as for me, Micah says, it's a contrast to the false prophets, I am filled with power and with the spirit of the Lord and with mishpat with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. That's it's one of the theme verses for Micah right there, Micah 3, verse eight. What is Micah all about? It's about Micah proclaiming the judgment of God upon the people and proclaiming their sin to them. Quick test for you. What are the telltale signs of a false prophet? Look no further than Micah chapter three, verse eight, and compare it to the rest of the false prophets in Judah. True spiritual leaders are filled with power in the spirit, not just position and authority. True spiritual leaders are filled with power in the spirit, not just position and authority. Power for leaders isn't found in titles, rank, or authority. Leadership is an action, it's not a position. Leadership is an action, it's not a position. Number two. True spiritual leaders preach about sin, not just grace. True spiritual leaders preach about sin, not just grace. The false prophets told the people what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. 
Micah gave Judah the bad news before he gave them the good news. And Micah chapter three is almost all, all bad news. The condemnation, the results of Israel's sin and failure to live with Mishpat and Zedekah in Judah is found down in verse 12, Micah 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, because of your leaders, going back to verse 11, the heads, the priests, the prophets, because of them, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain a house of a, on a wooded height. Um, this is a, a prophecy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, God's condemnation and taking the, uh, the people of Judah into exile. Zion will be plowed as a field. What's really interesting is the Assyrians actually did come to the doorstep of Jerusalem in, in 701 BC. This was after this prophecy was written. Micah prophesied that the city was going to experience a collapse, it was gonna fall to foreign invaders. The whole city would be taken and the people would be taken into exile. Jeremiah and Micah spoke to the people at that time and, and they responded to the call of God and they actually repented. And so for a while through the leadership of Hezekiah and these prophets like Micah, the people did respond, they did repent and the Lord delivered them on one occasion but it won't be long after that that Nebuchadnezzar will come in and he will not deliver them. Uh, so the prophecy is fulfilled in about 586 BC. A couple points of application uh, before we introduce some new members here. First, I wanna give just a, a brief caution. It's kind of a side topic, probably something for another sermon, different day, but definitely wanna mention it. God is silent with Judah, tells Micah, he tells the other prophets, stop, stop speaking, stop praying, I'm not gonna hear you. And I just wanna be, uh, issue a caution here when interpreting the silence of God. Habakkuk was the, the prophet who cried out against the maddening silence of God. If you go back, you can read that little prophet. Uh, C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer and uh, early on in their marriage, and he wrote a book on dealing with it. It's called A Grief Observed. So one of the classic C.S. Lewis signature classics. Um, and he talked a little bit in there about the silence of God. He couldn't understand why God was so silent in his life when he experienced this grief and loss. And he wrote this, it says, meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of a bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well have turned away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why, Lewis asks, is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and very absent of help in a time of trouble? As Lewis was experiencing hardship, difficulty, and loss in his life, it felt like God was silent, like God wasn't speaking to him. 
And if you just keep turning the pages in a grief observed, he comes to a completely different conclusion by the end of it. It's kind of a, more like his memoirs that he's writing uh, this book through. Later on, he wrote this. He said, what I thought was silence was not really silence at all, but rather a silent certainty, not the gaze of an uncompassionate God. In other words, God was responding to Lewis in the silence. He was speaking to him. Might not have been the way that he wanted him to, but he was. God is speaking. Number two, I want you to think differently about God's judgment. I want you to think differently about God's judgment, um, especially as we read about it in the book of Micah. Some of us, when we think about God's judgment, we think about recompense for evil. We think about prices, payments that are made. We think about condemnation. We think about consequences. Yeah, I can forgive you, but it doesn't mean it's, it's gonna be void of consequences. There's gonna be consequences to actions. Um, when Jesus first preached his very first sermon in the Gospels, you can go back and you can read about it in Luke chapter four. Um, I'd really... I don't want you to turn to Luke 4. I want you to turn to verses that he quotes in Isaiah 61, because this is a little bit closer to home in our context. Turn back in your Bible to Isaiah 61. If I was gonna preach my first sermon at TBC, I'd probably preach on the word of God and its place in the life of a believer or I'd preach on the gospel and the grace of God. That's, that's where I would start. Um, Jesus, when he preached his first sermon, you almost get the, get the feeling like he's a, he's a false teacher. He emphasizes very much the grace and the goodness of God, but he leaves out the judgment of God, the judgment of the Father. And it's really interesting how it all comes together. When Jesus gives his first sermon in a small synagogue in Nazareth, we probably would have went there, wouldn't we have, Brad? Overlooking, he's overlooking the Jezreel Valley when he, a scroll is handed to him in a very tiny synagogue in a small rural town in the northern part of Israel. And it just so happens that he turns open to the scroll of Isaiah and he turns to this passage, Isaiah chapter 61. And he begins reading. He says this, Isaiah 61, verse one. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That sounds a little bit like Micah, chapter three, verse eight. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And right there, he ends the passage. Is that right in the middle of verse two for you? It's right in the middle of verse two for me too. There's a comma there at the end of that last word. And it's probably one of the biggest, longest commas that you're gonna find in the Bible. Because he doesn't finish the verse. It does, he doesn't go on to read in the day of the vengeance of our God. He leaves that part out. Why would Jesus preach on the day of redemption and liberation and grace instead of the day of judgment. Isn't Jesus the one who's offensive in the Bible? 
yeah, Jesus is offensive. Jesus offends a lot of people in the scriptures. Uh, and he seems to not really be concerned too much on who gets offended by his words. Jesus is extremely offensive throughout the Gospels. Why did he stop in the middle of verse two in Isaiah 61? What does it have to do with the judgment of God? The reason why he stopped in verse two of Isaiah 61 is because Jesus would come concerning judgment, but he would come to bear judgment. He would bring the judgment of God upon himself and bear it himself for us instead of letting us experience it. Jesus did preach judgment. He preached on hell more than any other subject in the New Testament, more than any other New Testament writer. Um, Jesus knew the drastic implications and the serious eternal implications of the judgment of God. He warned the people over and over again. He pleaded with people to repent and to listen and to turn to him, to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. A lot of us um, have this idea that uh, the Bible presents a, a very obscure view of God, one who annihilates, gen uses genocide to annihilate total people groups. They say, I don't wanna follow a, a, a God who would judge an entire people group and eliminate them from the face of the earth. Well, first of all, he said that to one people group out of many people groups in a very specific context that didn't go for all the times and all the people and all the cities that Joshua was invading in the conquest. Second of all, the very same judgments that he gives to his enemies and to pagans are the same judgments that he gives to his very own people, Israel. That if they are unfaithful to the covenant, they too will experience the judgment of God in their context and in their specific situation. But when Jesus comes to the world, he doesn't come to bring the judgment of God. He comes to bear the judgment of God. And he does it for us. I did not come to judge the world. The world is already judged through God. I have come to save them from their sins. And if you believe in me, you have everlasting life, and I will give you everlasting life. Jesus took on flesh so that he might bear the judgment of God for us so that we wouldn't have to bear it for ourselves because we are all guilty of violating the mishpat and the tzedakah of God. And not only that, the perfect redeemer lived a perfect, righteous, and just life. And he gives that life to us so that when we believe in him, it's as if we too have been just and righteous in our dealings with people. And we have everlasting life because of Jesus and because of what he has done. Micah talks a lot about justice, talks a lot about judgment, it talks a lot about hope. It talks a lot about the promise of a redeemer too. And we're gonna see that for the next uh, couple weeks as we continue through this sermon series. I wanna invite you to come on back. You've been listening to Tulsa Bible Church's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.